0: You're listening to the Pilot Photog Podcast. I'm your host, Juan, also known as Tog. Let's listen to the story of the pilot who flew the F-4 Phantom and A-10 Warthog. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by retired Air Force Colonel Steve Ladd. He is the author of the book From Phantom to Warthog, Memoirs of a Cold War Fighter Pilot. Thanks for joining, Steve. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Juan. You've had quite an incredible career that spanned decades and two major different types of airframes. Of course, the F-4 Phantom and the A-10 Warthog. Looking back on your career, what is one thing you wish you would have known before you began your career? Oh,
1: that's a very interesting question because uh, unlike a lot of guys who ended up in fighters, I didn't have this dream of being a fighter pilot since I was seven or eight years old. Uh, despite the fact my dad was uh, was an Air Force uh uh, an Air Force officer, a navigator, served in three wars, including my own, at the same time I was there. Um, he never pressured me, never pushed me in that direction. So uh, I found myself like uh, like a lot of young men at 16, 17 years old, uh, graduating from high school, getting ready to go to university without the faintest idea what I wanted to do with my life. I ended up going through the Reserve Officer Training Corps there. And uh, but still, not until I I was selected to go to pilot training, and actually started that process, uh, that, that I began to get motivated to uh, to fly airplanes. So um, there's not a lot that I wish I had known because, quite honestly, I went into the career pretty blind. Um, man, it worked out great, but uh, but I can't honestly say that uh, that I had a a driving desire to be there or driving desire to get started, uh, it all ignited uh, once I started flying.
0: So you caught the flying bug, you know, once you began, I guess, flight training.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I had flown a little bit in the ROTC. I flew in a Piper Colt, if anybody's old enough to remember those, uh, that was part of the ROTC program and I enjoyed it, but I can't honestly say that it, uh, that it was my uh, my life's blood uh, when I got into pilot training and started uh, started seeing what was going to happen with uh, uh, getting into jet aircraft and then getting into the T thirty eight. Uh, it was then somehow that the uh, light bulb came on, and I got excited about it.
0: Excellent. And you know, in the book, you talk about the training phase leading up to getting into the F four and the different aircraft you flew, starting with, of course, the T forty one, which is the Air Force designation for the Cessna one seventy two, and then onto the Tweet, and then onto the T thirty eight or the White Rocket, as it's called. And you do a great job of, uh, you know, kind of chronicling your achievements along the way. What are some things that kind of stand out in your training, in your flight training regimen?
1: Uh, I think it was the, uh, I think it was the program itself and uh, the the way it was designed to gradually bring you up from absolutely nothing to, uh, at the end of the day, 53 weeks later, a pretty competent pilot when, uh, when mom the way, pinned the wings on my chest, the, the, the program itself, I have to go back and say, was very, very well designed. It was a stair-step approach. You, uh, you uh, started with uh, the absolute basic simplicities of life, and then you moved on up at a, at a gradual rate. And uh, although, uh, particularly in the T38, uh, you would uh, wake up in the morning and say, geez, I wonder how I'm going to keep up today. Uh, somehow you did. And, uh, the, uh, the training program, the instructors I had, uh I, uh, I, I can say nothing bad about them, uh, with the possible exception of the, the ones that sat next to me in the T37 and crimped my oxygen hose. There were a couple of those, but other than that, uh, the, uh, the instructors were great. The, uh, the training was great. And at the end of the day, um, I, uh, I stepped out with a set of wings on my chest and, uh, and a fair bit of confidence that I was going to be able to do uh, what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, and that you said 53 weeks, right? So just over a year, you go from yeah. basically almost no pilot experience to a fighter.
1: Exactly. Well, not to a fighter pilot, but to, to a rated pilot. Uh, and it was after these 53 weeks that you end up then uh, going, to, uh, going to the aircraft that, you, uh, that you, will be, you will be flying in the real Air Force, in my case, the F-4.
0: And that's the slotting process, which you also mentioned in the book. And the top, I think it's the top 5% or top 10% get to pick.
1: Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a little, well, it was very, very simple. Uh, they, uh, they came down with a block of aircraft from on high, uh, the same number of airplanes that we had the uh, student pilots. And uh, if you graduated number one, based on your flying and your academic record and, and everything else, Uh, you walked into the boss's office, you uh crossed the uh, you crossed the airplane off the uh, blackboard, and uh, that's what you got. If you were the last in line, you got what was left over. Simple as that.
0: And I'm guessing the F4s were never left over, right?
1: Oh, no, no, the F4s were always at the top, fighters were always at the top and always
0: taken first.
1: We only had about uh, we had 12 or 14 F-4s and one F-105. That's all the fighters we got.
0: And and you were skilled enough and fortunate enough to be, you know, to select the F-4. What was it like flying the F-4?
1: Well, uh, first of all, as I explained in the book, uh, the Air Force in its infinite wisdom decided that uh, the way to solve the pilot shortage was to take anybody who uh, who got an F-4 out of pilot training and put them in the back seat for uh a finite period of time. Bad decision, in my humble opinion. It didn't make us very happy because we'd done pretty well in pilot training. We thought we ought to be on the pointy end, but uh, we, uh, we climbed in the back seat. Uh, when I went in, there were no navigators in the back seat whatsoever, just pilots. We, uh, we did our apprenticeship back there for, uh, for a for long time, in my case, uh, a little over two years, And then finally, we got to the point where you could really say we were flying the airplane and we moved up front. That's when it began to dawn on me uh, just how great flying the F-4 was. It was all power and speed and noise. Uh, It was uh, was, uh, in some cases a very unforgiving airplane. For example, if you were maneuvering hard, putting a lot of G and a lot of angle of attack on the airplane, and uh, you threw the stick over in one direction, uh, it would snap roll in the other direction, which uh, which uh, woke you up and gave you quite a surprise. So you learned in the F four to keep the stick centered and to turn with the rudders. It was very very different, but uh, but that's the way it worked.
0: Interesting, I never knew that. So it, it's true ah. of stick and rudder flying, right? None of this uh, fly by wire or anything like exactly.
1: that. Exactly. Yeah. It, Both my airplanes were like that. I am most grateful they were. I would
0: imagine you feel much more control and much more, um, it requires much more skill to keep the airplane in the air and and to fly it proficient.
1: Uh, I think so. I suppose the guys that fly by wire (laughs) would disagree, but I certainly think so. Yeah, I think I I was very fortunate in learning and flying my entire career in an airplane that uh, that I had to control. It wasn't done by algorithms and electrics. And I, uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that.
0: And you flew the F-4 in the Vietnam War and then later in Europe, I believe And you were based in Spain and would deploy over to Turkey. Can you talk about any of those experiences?
1: Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the F-4 was, well, in my humble opinion, the, the, the most versatile airplane, fighter airplane ever built. Uh, it did everything. And of course, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, we were, uh, we were doing uh, manual bombing, we were doing interdiction, conventional bombing, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, occasionally got to strafe, and uh, although I never got to do it over there, uh, other guys were uh, mixing it up with MiGs and air-to-air. So the airplane did it all. Then when I got to Spain, we, uh, we entered into the, uh, the nuclear delivery business. And uh, as you say, we spent one month out of every three in Turkey, Inserlik, southeastern Turkey, near Adana. Uh, and uh, we sat nuke alert there. And uh, the uh, mission there was, at the height of the Cold War, tensions and all that, if the balloon ever went up, our mission was to uh, lug one single centerline B61Y3 uh, nuclear weapon uh, up into the southern part of Mother Russia and uh, make a big hole. And uh, fortunately, it never happened, but uh, that's what we trained for. That's what we set alert for, and, uh, and uh, that's, that's what we did. Now, of course, we didn't do that all the time. Uh, in Turkey, for example, if we weren't uh, sitting on the bomb, uh, we were flying uh, air-to-air. We were flying conventional air-to-ground with uh, practice bombs on uh, bombing ranges. In northern Turkey, and doing all the normal training, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, our job was to uh, was to carry nukes. At that point,
0: I can't even imagine what the you know the stress and the tension and the security surrounding all of that must have been must have been like on the base.
1: Yeah, well the 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 nuclear role is uh, is is steeped in uh, in in rules and regulations and stipulations. So uh, you you you've got to be very very precise in, uh, in what you do and what you can do. The way it worked was we, uh, we had a designated target. We had the same designated target every time we went on alert. We uh, planned and we memorized that target, All everything that had to do with uh, getting there, getting, getting the bomb off the airplane, <laughs> and if you had enough fuel departing. Uh, and uh, we knew it by heart. And uh, every two or three months, uh, they would certify you at, at the home base. You'd go up and uh, stand at attention in front of the wing commander and people like that. And you would basically tell them exactly what your, uh, what your mission profile was all about and how you were going to get there and how you were going to uh, do your job. That, it was, actually, that was more tense than <laughs> worrying about whether or not you were actually going to fly the thing.
0: Right. It was the briefing and the debriefing, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, never get, never got as far as a debrief because we that's never, right. uh, never actually had to fly the <laughs> Good mission. Good point.
0: Unfortunately for all of us, that's right. While you were in Europe during the Cold War, you did visit East Berlin, and you talk about that in yeah. the book. And, and to me, it was a fascinating insight to what it was like during the Cold War. Can you share some of your experiences going into that city at that time?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that unless you served that, that particular time, unless you spent time over here, you probably weren't even aware of. But of course, after the Second World War, Berlin was parceled out between the United States, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, France and Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, everybody had a chunk of uh, of East Berlin, which of course is situated like a little island in the middle of uh, of East Germany. Consequently, the uh, the rules and the uh, the uh, the laws that governed East Berlin were absolutely fascinating. We were not only allowed to visit uh, Berlin, we were encouraged to visit Berlin. Uh, I was encouraged to bring my wife, which I did. She enjoyed it. And uh, we were encouraged, again, to uh, don the uniform. That was mandatory. And to uh, sally forth into East Berlin because that was a demonstration of our right to be there. The uh, French and the Brits did the same thing. The Russians, to a lesser extent, because uh, they were a little concerned about letting their people Come to the west side because a lot of them didn't want to go back. Right. Certainly, as far as the Allies were concerned, it was a great thing. We went. To, my wife and I went for about two weeks, and we drove. That again was a, was a, an interesting point in itself because you would uh, you would drive into Bad Guy Land from West Berlin uh, on the Autobahn. Uh, you'd be briefed. You'd have a certain amount of time to make the trip. If you didn't show up on time, they'd send people out looking for you. Uh, you couldn't stop. You couldn't get off. You couldn't get back on the autobahn, and it was just a, a, a fascinating work to get in there. Once you got into West Berlin, the American sector, uh, we stayed at uh, Tempelhof, which was the American uh, Air Force uh, airport there, and also uh, where the uh, where the American headquarters were. Had very nice accommodation. We loved it there. We had a great time. And uh, we, uh, we planned our trips into the East. Um, one story I told in the book is, 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 gives you an idea of, uh, of just how the international intrigues went and how, uh, how nations plot, I guess, if you want to say so. There's, there's no other way to put it. Uh, we were briefed that uh, the East German Deutschmark, the currency, and the West German Deutschmark, the West Western currency were pegged one to one. They were equal. However, we were told if we wanted to exchange our uh, West marks for East marks at uh, certain banks in the West, we'd have a very nice surprise. So we did that. We went to one of these banks and I decided, well, I'm I'm going to I'm going to push the boat out here and uh, I I cashed in a thousand marks, uh, West marks, and the guy gave me 4,000 East marks back. And I looked at him and he just kind of smiled at me and off I went. I later got to talking to a, a member of the Air Force contingent that lived in Berlin. And he said, Oh, yeah. He said, They don't tell you about that. He said, That's your little way of destabilizing the East German currency. They said, Because we kind of turn our, turn our heads and, and look the other way for uh, what you might call black market uh, exchange services. Uh, you are able to go into the East Germany. You can buy things that they can't touch. They see you buying things that they can't touch. That generates envy, and it also uh, destabilizes their currency. So my wife of course was delighted about this. We we went in, she she chopped her head off. Uh we uh, we we went out for meals at, in the evening in uh, in East Berlin. We uh we did all sorts of stuff and uh although East Berlin was the communist mecca in Europe, it was pretty shabby if you compared it to the west. And uh, another thing that I talk about in the book is we uh, we went one evening and had dinner in a rotating restaurant in East Berlin up at the top of the, uh, the TV tower, still, I think the third or fourth tallest tower in, uh, in Europe. And while we were having dinner and the thing was rotating, it was amazing to me that when we were looking to the West, to the, uh, to the good guy's side, it looked like any thriving vibrant city lights and, lots of stuff going on and all the rest of it. But if you watched as the thing rotated very slowly, you would see the line where the wall went through the city of Berlin. And on the other side, it was dark and it was dreary. There was very little sign of life and certainly no sign of uh, people having a good time. And that really, uh, that really got to me. I really thought that was, uh, that was something to behold. So our trip to Berlin was was enlightening. It's uh, it's something that I wouldn't trade for anything. We went back a few years later uh, when the wall had gone. And uh, (laughs) I've got to say, it wasn't nearly as fascinating as the first trip, uh, although it was uh, obviously a much freer and and much easier access uh, type of thing.
0: Yeah. And you do a great job in the book of going into you know all the detail, getting in there, getting back out, all the things that have to happen. And that uh, example of the restaurant, it just really highlights the differences. And it was a, a powerful image to me. I, I really appreciated that, that you included that in the book.
1: Yeah, it was to me too. It was to me too. I, I watched it all evening long and I thought I'll bet that the uh That the Russians and there were lots of Russians, lots of Soviet uh, high rollers up in this restaurant, and East Germans i 'll bet they're not at all happy to have people like me in the United States Air Force uniform see this, uh, but that's why we went to East Germany to uh, stake our claim, so to speak
0: that's right, and evidently it worked <laughs>
1: yeah, apparently so. <laughs>
0: so you flew i guess for about half your career right you flew the f4 is that a is that a fair statement
1: almost exactly 12 years in the f4 12 years in the a10
0: can you describe um, to the listeners what your impression was of the a10 the first time you
1: <laughs> yeah it was butt ugly um that's that's what came to my mind and remember i went into the a10 in, uh, in the in the late 70s there was there was no Google, there was no internet. There was no way to go in and take a look at things like this uh, and ready yourself for what it was gonna look like. When I far, first uh, saw the A-10, and I have, to, I have to contrast this with the F-4. I mean, the F-4 was, was never a pretty airplane. Uh, it had strange angles, it had turned up wings, it had a droopy tail, but man, it looked mean it really looked like a fighting machine. And it looked, uh, it looked tough. When I looked at the A-10, I thought, wow, this thing is ugly. It's got two great big engines stuck up on the fuselage, just forward of the tail all by themselves. Uh, It's got straight wings, great big straight wings. It's got a blunt nose with this, uh, with this gun sticking out the front of it. And, my image as a fighter pilot, uh, narcissistic as we all are, I thought, I really don't want to climb out of this thing in a strange airbase. People, uh, people will think I'm, I'm strange. Uh, so my first impression of the town was not very good, but I'll have to say uh, she seduced me. And she seduced me pretty quickly because uh, uh, for all her for all her physical deformities, uh, the A-10 is one hell of an airplane.
0: Yeah, it has earned a very deserved reputation of you know as a rugged, dependable, tough aircraft. Yeah. I think in the book you mentioned your friend, I believe his call sign was Bear, kind of convinced you to switch from the F-4 to the A-10. Yeah.
1: Uh, when uh, I, was, I was at RAF Bentwaters in, in, in England near, uh, near Ipswich at the time, flying F-4s. Uh, when the Air Force decided that they were going to transition uh, our base and our wing uh, to the A-10, I had been flying the F-4 for a long time. I'd been to the fighter weapons school. Uh, I was wearing the patch. I thought, well, that shouldn't affect me very much because I can stay with the F-4 and I can, I can continue to get jobs in the F-4 because I've got, uh, I've got pretty good street cred in this airplane and, uh, and I can do that. So without applying a whole lot of logic or reason, uh, I decided that that's what I was going to do. They gave us a choice: we could either uh, we we could either uh, upgrade to the A10 or we could stick with the F4 and uh, follow her wherever she might go. Now my initial decision was: I'm going to stay with the F4. I I know it like the back of my hand. I'm comfortable. I'm pretty good at it, and that's what I'll do. Well, the bear. Uh, was my backseater in Spain a number of years earlier, and he was navigator, and uh, we were we were a great team. Uh, he was my best man at our wedding. Uh, he was a hell of a good guy and uh, and a very very talented aviator. And the Air Force finally recognized this and uh, sent him to pilot training. He came out of pilot training and went to the A7 single seat. Uh, ground attack airplane, probably the, if you would, the the forerunner to the A-10 in terms of close air support and that type of thing. And uh, he'd been flying the A-7 and just happened to pass through uh, the UK and came up to visit us at Bentwaters just about the time I was going to have to make a a firm decision and uh, sign the dotted line for what I wanted to do. Uh, We sat down and uh, Elaine prepared us a lovely meal, and we did that. And we jumped into the uh, into the single malt Scotch bottle, and we got to talking. And she got fed up and went to bed, and we continued. And uh, I said, "No, I said I'm not sticking. I'm not going into the A10. I said it's ugly and it's slow and it's this and that and the other. I had all these uh, all these incredibly." clever arguments to, uh, to justify, uh, going into the F4. And he heard me out. And then he said, now for, for a guy who's pretty bright, Steve, you can be awfully stupid. <laughs> and I could take that from him because, uh, we we had developed that kind of relationship, but he, he commenced to tell me and and talk to me about a, the mission, uh, and the mission, the close air support mission, as opposed to. Uh, the Jack of all trades routine in the F-4. And he told me all about that. And he told me how, how gratifying it was to fly the close air support mission to support guys on the ground, which I'd done very little of. And then he talked about uh, flying a single seat airplane, not having to uh, make decisions by committee uh, and uh, not having to worry about uh, somebody else in the airplane with you. So by the time the night was over, and I was, uh, I I suppose I was still reasonably conscious, he'd talked me into A, the mission, and B, the airplane. And um, I am grateful to him to this day for doing that, because uh, I've never looked back. Uh, It was the best thing I ever did. And I went into the personnel office on Monday morning and signed up for the Warthog. And uh, the rest is history. It was great.
0: That's a great story and a, and a fortunate transition, I, I think. So, when you transitioned from the the F four to the A ten, what was that like? Getting used to, as you said, you know, you flew slower, but you also flew a lot lower.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The A ten was built to fly low. Uh, it's a much slower airplane. The best you're going to get out of her uh, in a screaming dive is about 400 knots. But so what? That's not the role. Yeah, the airplane, uh, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. The airplane itself to fly, just to fly, to get in the air, to uh, uh, wander around, to do some aerobatics, to bring back and land is very, very simple. The mission itself is, is ultra complex, and it takes an awful lot of thought and an awful lot of smarts, and it takes an awful lot of teamwork with other airplanes, people on the ground and all the rest to uh, do what you need to do if you're gonna support uh, a bunch of grunts down there that, uh, that are having problems with, uh, with the bad guys. I flew, my entire A-10 career was flown in the A model, which was the first model. And uh, it was built like uh, most airplanes here play the Air Force builds. Uh, it was built to save money. Uh, and consequently, the airplane itself was very, very simple. It was uh, pretty much a World War II airplane with jet M engines. Uh, avionics were next to nothing. We, uh, for an airplane that was supposed to run around at 100 feet uh, over the ground, we had no inertial navigation system, no, uh, no magic of any kind. And but of course, that made better pilots out of us. But uh, it uh, it kind of detracted from uh, from some of the uh, some of the things that uh, that airplanes with uh, with the magic can do. didn't didn't daunt us though. we uh, we uh, figured out a way to navigate. We figured out a way to do what we needed to do. We got real good at dropping bombs. And then all of a sudden, it was time to shoot that gun. And that changed the whole world for me. The gun uh, is. Uh, well, the only way to put it is awe-inspiring. Just very briefly, for 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 listeners who aren't aware of it, uh, it's called the gau Eight. Contrary to popular opinion, they didn't build the gun first and the airplane around it. Almost though, the specification was for a gun that would kill armor, and they had to uh, they had to do some fairly sporty modifications on the airplane so it would fit in. But what they came up with was uh, absolutely dazzling. The gun uh, is capable of firing seventy beer bottle size projectiles, thirty millimeter projectiles, per second. I'll say that again: uh, seventy per second. And uh, the uh, the gun is incredibly accurate. The combat mix is uh, is a combination of. Uh, Uh, Armor-piercing incendiary and high-explosive incendiary, and uh, it's a five-to-one mix. Uh, The uh, armor-piercing incendiary punches holes in the tank, and the uh, high-explosive incendiary bounces around inside and uh, makes things very, very miserable for the crew. Uh, But the gun is is incredibly accurate. It fires, as I say, 70 a second, 4,200 rounds a minute. But we only carried 1,170 rounds, and people will say, well, that doesn't equate, doesn't work out mathematically. Well, it does sort of because you only need to squeeze off about a second's worth to do what you want to do on any given pass. So that's 70 rounds. So 1,170, which is what you carry, is plenty for the average mission. The gun is something that the first time you fire it at the range, uh, it just makes your eyes water. Once again, the uh, the gun sight was very basic. It was just a gun cross at 41 mils. Uh, you put it on the target, squeeze the trigger for a half a second or a second. You watch this great clump of uh, of bullets hit the target, and they do hit pretty near the target unless you're really bad at, at, at what you're aiming at. And uh, it uh, it just it just makes you it just makes you want to shout which I did many times.
0: I can imagine, I'm sure the entire airframe is just vibrating, right? When you're firing that thing. Yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. The, uh, the other story goes that when you fire it, uh, the airplane slows down. I, I suppose it probably would, but again, you fire such short bursts that it doesn't have quite that much effect on the speed.
0: Yeah, and I imagine typically you're in a dive as well, right? Because you're shooting something on the ground.
1: Um, normally, but not necessarily much of a dive. Um, we did an awful lot of level scrape and uh, very low angle scrape, four or five degrees of uh, descent, I would say, rather than dive, because uh, you don't really want to get up where people can shoot at you to uh, come in with a with much of a dive angle. So you do an awful lot of work, uh, very very low.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. When you were deployed, uh, or when you were in the A ten, your career was progressing, and you were you were gaining rank and, of course, responsibility. Uh, which ultimately led to being the director of operation at, at Bentwaters for the 81st Tactical Fighter Wing. At that time, I believe it was the largest uh, operational fighter aircraft squadron in the world, mostly consisting of A-10s. What was it like being at that base and, and managing all those aircraft and pilots?
1: Busy. <laughs> it was a great job. It was uh, it was it was truly great. As you say, uh, we had 108 A-10s. Uh, Six squadrons, 18 aircraft each. We had one squadron of uh, of F-16 aggressors that uh, did the job uh, throughout Europe. They deployed, they fought against fighter airplanes all over Europe just to uh, uh, do that dissimilar type of uh, air combat tactics. Not only did we have the uh, operations, the 81st is centered on twin bases, uh, the bases at Bentwaters and Woodbridge, which are side by side in Suffolk. They're only a couple of miles apart, uh, but you, uh, we operated off both runways. And uh, with that many squadrons, uh, I'm sure that pretty much decided where they'd go. In addition to the twin bases and the twin main operating bases, we had four forward operating locations in uh, Germany. And they pretty much spanned Germany from north to south. There was one in, uh, in, in pretty much in the very north called uh, Alhorn at a German base. Uh, the next one south was near uh, the city of Cologne, uh, and I spent uh, three years there as the operations officer. Uh, that was at uh, Norvenick, which was a, a German fighter base. A little further south in central Germany was uh, another forward operating location at Sumbach, which was an American base uh, in the Kaiserslautern area. And then finally, down in Bavaria, uh, the fourth FOL was Leipheim, and that too was at a German base. The concept was, if the uh, Russians ever came charging across the inner german border with all their armor, uh, we would fight from these four FOLs. Uh, the airplanes would deploy there. They, they were deployed there to train all the time anyway, but they would deploy there. The FOLs were capable of arming them, refueling them and doing relatively minor maintenance on them. So they could fly and fight out of the forward operating locations for, uh, for uh, um, heavier damage or heavier problems. Uh, we'd have to get the airplanes back to Bentwaters and Woodbridge, the main bases where the main maintenance complex was. But uh, the, uh, the concept was to have aircraft on the ground that were capable of meeting the threat uh very very quickly if the uh if the russians decided to jump uh and it was a great concept it was it was super the uh the pilots loved it they spent a lot of time in germany uh, flying around at low level and getting used to the terrain and uh, uh we had a good time there it was it was
0: super that really was the tip of the spear because if anything started or broke out i mean you were going to be right there and in the book you mentioned you know this large concentration of all these fighter aircraft uh, and kind of mixing it up and, and mock dogfighting and, and doing all kinds of uh, you know, <laughs> jousting, I guess, or you know, cat and mouse games. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like and what that airspace was like? Yeah, yeah,
1: I will, Juan, because I can't get in trouble for that anymore. It was, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, during the height of the Cold War, there were so many allied aircraft working out of the Central Europe, primarily out of Germany uh, and uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, that area. The Brits were there in force, the Belgians, the Germans, the Dutch, uh, the Americans, of course. And uh, there were all sorts of airplanes. You couldn't, you couldn't drive in your car without seeing a flight of two or a flight of four at low level going one place or another when, uh, when you were in Germany. Um, consequently, the sky was full of them. They were everywhere. And as fighter pilots tend to do, if you see another fighter, you want to go down and gun him. Uh, And that's just just the way it works. Well, the bad news about that is, technically and legally, you're supposed to brief and control all these kind of engagements. And, of course, if you did it with aircraft at your own base, that would be easy enough to do. You sit down and brief with them, and you go out and you fly air combat. Well, that's a little difficult when uh, you uh, go out in your, uh, in your F-16 or your F-4 or your Warthog and you wrap it up with a, a German in his F-4 or a Brit in a tornado or whatever. Uh, you can't brief it. There's no way to get around that. Uh, but in fact, uh, it was the best training we could possibly have had because your head was always on a swivel. You were always looking out for other airplanes you were always looking out for somebody that wanted to jump you. And believe me, everyone wanted to jump you. So you'd go up and fly uh, some kind of a mission. I do not know what it was, low level or uh, a mission to the gunnery ranges or whatever. And uh, when you completed that mission and headed for home or on the way out, uh, somebody was more than likely going to bounce you. And when they did, uh you know nobody was going to just say i'm going to wag my wings and i'm going to be a good boy and i'm going to go home nah somebody jumps you you've got to you've got to meet the threat so uh, that's what happened day in and day out the air battles were epic uh, they were they were really something i can remember i can remember tying it up with 12 15 airplanes uh, all looping and diving and rolling and pulling in the same little bit of sky, the only thing that, uh, that we had of a, of a reasonable safety uh, net was the ability to come on the, the emergency guard frequency and say, knock it off. If things went bad, if a problem occurred, you could go on guard and say, knock it off and everyone would stop the battle. I've got to say, I never heard that. Never heard that once when I was over there. And uh, although it was illegal and although they'd have hung us up by our ghoulies if they caught us doing it, it was the greatest training we could possibly have had.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because it's not planned and you have, to be, you have to react to a developing situation. And I, I believe also you mentioned on the same guard frequency, people would broadcast their kills or they're, you know, getting behind somebody and calling out, uh, calling someone out for being, for being nailed.
1: Oh, absolutely. That, that's, the, that's the embarrassment factor. Uh, if you uh, if you had a if you had a valid shot, uh, you'd uh, you'd come up on guard and say so. Guns, guns on the uh, British Jaguar heading northeast uh, above uh, above Cologne. You know, not everybody would know who he was, but some folks would, and he'd uh, he'd be a little bit embarrassed later.
0: That's right. It's uh, probably very humiliating, I would imagine. You spent time at the Nellis Air Force Base at the Fighter Weapons School, the Air Force's Fighter Weapons School. Both, I believe, yep. in the F four and in the A ten. Can you yep. talk about some of your experiences there?
1: Yeah, you bet. Yes, I went through the uh, I went through the weapons school in the F four. I was a I was a, uh, a replacement training unit IP at Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, and I got picked to go to the uh, weapons school at Nellis. Delightful, known as the PhD of fighter aviation, and, and it most certainly is at the course is 6 months long uh it's a combination of uh probably the toughest academic program I've ever been through and the uh the most challenging flying program again that I've ever been through uh and this is simply because of the environment at Nellis uh, Nellis has always been uh, the home of the fighter pilot much of that is because of the training areas Uh, out to the north of Las Vegas, you would go for thousands of square miles. And uh, you're not bothering anybody. You're not, uh, uh, there's nobody living there. It's just you and the terrain. So they've built world-class gunnery ranges, lots of tactical ranges with uh, uh, simulated Soviet equipment, that kind of thing. And uh, you you can do things at Nellis that you can't do anywhere else in the world simply because you're not bothering anybody else. You're not, uh, you know, you're not uh, in, the, in the midst of uh, airline traffic and that kind of thing. Uh, so you're, uh, you're free to roam pretty much at Nellis. so it's a, it's a wonderful place to train. The weapons school itself, uh, again, toughest course I ever attended. Uh, the most gratifying course I ever finished. And uh, in fact, uh, it, was a, it was a great place to be. I'll tell you one story about uh, about my my days as a student there. We were about two thirds of the way through the program, and uh, we were flying uh, in, in in tactical phases. We were flying uh, air to ground missions with uh, with uh, aggressor airplanes, uh, F5s out of Nellis that would come up and tap us, just like they did over Germany. And you'd uh, you'd wrap it up with them for a while, and uh, and and have some pretty good air battles with them. Uh, But we were going through the uh, academic phase of studying uh, Soviet aircraft. And we've been looking at the MiG-21 and the MiG-17. we had been in that for three or four days. And uh, one afternoon, one Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, after another 12-hour day, most of them were, we dropped by the squadron uh, and uh, just to check the schedule, the flying schedule for the next day and see what was going on. And uh, the boss, the operations officer, a guy named Larry Keith, had uh, scheduled a meeting. And uh, being the kind of people we were, we griped and bitched about that. Oh, come on. Now it's, uh, you know, it's almost seven o'clock and it's time for a beer. And why do we, you know. But anyway, the the boss said there was a meeting. So there was a meeting. We went into the auditorium. We sat down and we grumbled and mumbled. And he got up on the stage and uh, had a couple of photos, big photos of a MiG-21 and a MiG-17 behind him. And he said, uh, for the last week, you've been studying these airplanes in your academic classes. And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, come on, let's go get a beer. And he said, he kind of hesitated uh, a little, little space for it to sink in. And he said, tomorrow, gentlemen, you'll start flying against these airplanes. Well, our chins hit the floor. Nobody had any idea this was coming. We, we, we simply could not fathom how we could be flying against actual MiG-17s, 21s, uh, in, the, uh, in the skies over Las Vegas, uh, or over Nevada. But that's what's happened. The uh, Department of Defense had a program on, uh, declassified, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago a program of evaluating and uh, and uh, taking apart and flying Soviet-built airplanes. Where they came from, that was the mystic part of it. We never knew. I'll never tell. But the fact is that north of Las Vegas, in, uh, in an area at that time, in an area that uh, in the movies they call Area 51, uh, we just called it the box because it was a big square area that you couldn't fly into there was a, an entire squadron of Soviet airplanes, MiG-21s, MiG-17s, flown by American pilots, uh, Air Force, Navy, Marine pilots, the occasional NATO pilot, Brits, a couple uh, of them. And uh, they'd been there for quite some time. And they'd reached the point where they wanted to evaluate how uh, a class in the fighter weapons school would do going up against uh, these kind of airplanes. Well, we were dazzled. So we went out, we flew against them, we flew four or five sorties against them, and uh, man, it was a great experience. It was truly a wonderful experience. It shows uh, how important or how important that the uh, weapons school was considered to be chosen to take part in this kind of thing, which was so highly classified you couldn't believe it. So that's uh, probably a high point of my time as a student there. Uh, you're right. I went back some years later uh, as the commander of the A10 division of the weapons school because it was broken up into aircraft. Uh, at the time that I went back, there were uh, there were four divisions. The uh, F4 division was still there, hanging in there. The F15s, the F16s, and the A10s, each each with their own uh, syllabus, each with their own uh, program, but uh, it you know, it fit into the, the same time frame, and it uh, it worked the same way. So I did a couple of years as a commander there. Great assignment, great people working for me. Easiest job I ever had because uh, because the guys that worked for me were just so damn good. Uh, but it was uh, it was it was very uh, it was very challenging, and it was uh, it was very uh, I was absolutely uh, amazed at uh, at what they accomplished.
0: Yeah, and that's that's quite an incredible achievement and and the fact that you got to fly actual sorties or or training missions against MiG 21s and and MiG MiG 19s or 17s 17s 17 At the yeah, time
1: MiG- later on they actually had 23s and uh uh so there were there were different airplanes that uh, cycled in and out.
0: That's incredible and I don't think many people realize that you know we had Soviet fighter aircraft flying out there. Yeah, we certainly didn't. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And it just recently became relatively recently became, um, as you said, declassified. So Steve, you've had an incredible, amazing career uh, as an Air Force pilot, evolving into eventually command roles. What's some advice you can give to a young person who's interested?
1: It's got to be a lot different from uh, when I went into the game the setup is different. The uh, rules are different. I, I'm afraid what I see is that, uh, that an awful lot of the spirit that, uh, that, that we were allowed to have and get away with seems to be in this day and age uh, uh, becoming the victim of political correctness and woke and all these things. But nevertheless, a guy that flies fighters is uh, is a standout individual. There are very few around. Uh, he's a member of, a, of a, small, uh, a small community of people who do something that no one else on earth does. And uh, it's, it's a gratifying thing to do. So for a young guy going into it, uh, I would say, give it your heart and soul. The more you work at it, the better you'll be. And uh, the better you are, the, uh, the more you'll enjoy it and the more you'll get out of it and it's uh, it's it's well worth your time people i suppose wonder today if it's uh, if it's worth the effort it's like i told my wife uh, just before i proposed to her i said you're about to marry a fighter pilot i said uh, we are never going to be rich but i said you're never going to want for anything and uh, we're not and we haven't and uh, i can't think of uh, i can't think of a better way to live, I've got absolutely no regrets. I wouldn't have changed a thing about the, the 28 years I spent, uh, 25 of which I flew fighters.
0: Yeah, I don't think you can say, it, you know, put it any better. Again, you've, you've had a wonderful, amazing career. I'm very thrilled that you wrote this book. I couldn't put it down. I, I think I read it, read it in the span of a few days. I mean, it was just, it's a real page turner.
1: Glad to hear it.
0: Yeah. And it's, you write it in a way that I felt like you're just having a conversation. You know, It's like sitting at the bar and just talking to somebody. It, it flows very well. I encourage anyone you know listening to this to pick up a copy. Uh, if you have even a passing interest in fighter airplanes, you need to read this book. The book again is from F-4 Phantom to A-10 Warthog, Memoirs of a Cold War Fighter Pilot. It's by Steve Ladd. I'll leave a link in the description or in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also check out my YouTube channel. I'll leave the link in the show notes below. And lastly, you can find me on any social media platform at Pilot Photog. Be well, stay safe, and see you next time.